Well, thank you all for having me. I do appreciate it. Um, my name is Peter Blackburn, as I said. Um, and uh, I grew up in Colorado and um, went to Union College um, in Nebraska for undergraduate and then med school at the University of Colorado. Um, was at Kettering for a transitional year and then residency at the University of Colorado. And then, yeah, there you go. That's good. And then um, did a vitreoretinal fellowship at the University of Kentucky and then ended up staying there. And so I've been there since about 2004. So we get to teach medical students and residents and fellows and um, see a lot of patients in Appalachia and um, in central Kentucky. Um, so my theme for the talk really is God's faithfulness. Um, and this is sort of an introductory part of this. Um, and often, you know, we're asked for titles before we give a talk way in advance. And then as you develop your talk, often your title has nothing to do with what your talk is about. And so that's what's happened in this. And so really, if I was to rename this, it would be God's faithfulness. And he's faithful no matter if we're faithful or not. He is faithful. And so um, let's say a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your love and your watch care, and I ask um, that you would be with me this morning, and um, so much that I've learned already here, and um, I pray, Father, that you would just um, send your Holy Spirit to be here in our room as we talk. In your name I pray, amen. Psalms 37 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness in the light and your justice as the noonday. So, full disclosure, this is my first Amen conference, so you all actually should welcome me rather than me welcoming you. So, yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, and I've learned a lot. Um, this was a very, very nice presentation. Thank you so much. And lots that I've heard so far. So, and I appreciate that. Um, and my contribution today, God willing, is that um, what God has really done in my life, so it's more of a testimony over the last few years of what God has done um, in my life. And so part of that presentation is talking about OCT. And I really didn't know who to expect to be here today. And so I thought maybe it would be a little bit of a primer. It's obviously not. We all have professionals. So, um, yeah, so we can probably speed through that really quick because you guys probably know the same amount as, as what I'll be saying. So my apologies for that. Um, but I wanted you to understand OCT or wanted anybody that was in here to understand OCT because the story that I tell at the end is a really good juxtaposition of technology and God's faithfulness. And so, so okay, we'll move along here. So um, Greg Lee is a fellow that used to work with me, a really nice guy. He's in Atlanta, Georgia now practicing. Um, but he sent this talk to me while we were in Mongolia, actually. This is the talk that I presented at, um, at, for the residents in Mongolia. Um, I have no disclosures for this. This is where I work at the University of Kentucky um, in the Shriners building. Um, this is our team. And uh, if you find my picture in there, you'll see that I look a lot younger then than I do now, because um, that was quite a few years ago. Um, so OCT, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about in this first few minutes and some of the things that OCT does for us. Um, so that some of the history of OCT, um, it was developed in the early 90s at MIT and at Tufts in Boston. Um, and um, the first was the Stratus that came out. I call it the Pac-Man OCT because it's so pixelated and doesn't gives you a little bit of information but not a lot. Um, in 2006, they came out with the Spectral Domain OCT, which gave us a lot more information. Um, and it's just a, a much higher level uh, of information that we give. If you do a PubMed search on OCT, you will find about 20,000 articles between 2000 and now. So it's a very common modality that people use to, um, to evaluate retinal disease. Um, this is sort of the physics of OCT, and we won't spend a lot of time on there. Um, in fact, it's easier if we look at a picture. And so a, a ray of light comes into the eye. It bounces off all of the ocular structures. It's then compared with a, with a regular um, or a, a standard uh, of ray of light, and it generates an A-scan. And then when we put lots of A-scans together, what we get is... 
of course, a B-scan. And so when you have the B-scan, then you can look at, that actually starts to look like an eye, and you have some different pathology that you can look at, like this nevus that we're looking at there. Um, so how, what does an A-scan or B-scan have to do with an OCT? Well, the OCT is basically just lots of A-scans that are performed by the computer. And so the, t- the stratus, or the time domain OCT, performs about 400 A-scans per second. And that's what gives us that pixelated figure. And you can see you know, the different layers of the retina. You can see the choroid, different things like that. Spectral domain OCT increases that number to about 18,000 to 70,000 A-scans. And you can see this is the image that we get. This is a pathology slide. And you can see it's actually not bad, right? And when we compare the pathology slide to the OCT that's generated. Um, And these are some more examples of different types of OCTs, the Sirius, the Heidelberg, and the OptiView. Um, If we look at the swept source OCT, which is sort of the standard now, you see it's 100,000 or 250,000 A scans per second. And that's how we get this kind of detail. We get this vitreous um, detail, which is optically clear. You can see the the choroidal vasculature really well. And the retinal layers and the banding of the inner retina and the outer retina are very abundant. So different types of scans that we do, you're probably familiar with some of these, the cube scan, the raster, the grid, all of those different types of scans that we use, and the different terminology that we use, um, hyperreflective, shadowing, windowing, all of these things. Um, it's really good at edema, fluid, and PEDs, and things like that. Um, so the types of findings that we get... Um, we can get, so this is a patient with geographic atrophy and macular degeneration, and you can see this window-type defect where the scan just goes all the way through the choroid because there's nothing to stop it. So it's like a punched-out lesion um, in the macula. Um, Here we see an epiretinal membrane with this tractional forces that are placed on the retina and how the retina is pulled up into that. You can see the color scheme up here where it shows the edema. Um, it's very good at, uh, OCT is very good at looking at different um, types of leakage, intraretinal leakage and diabetic macular edema, also with age-related macular degeneration with these pigment epithelial detachments and subretinal fluid. And so the hallmark and what we're going to talk about mostly today is vitreomacular adhesion or interface problems. And you can see here is adhesion where there's, um, it's not evident to me, but it I don't know if it is to you or not, but you can see how the vitreous is attached to the retina in this place. Here it starts to pull a little bit more, and here we start to have a macular hole formation. Um, So the types of scanning errors that we can get, just to go through this quickly, you can get movement errors where the patient moves. You can see here you have two foveas, not really anatomically correct. Here you can get segmentation errors where the computer draws the line in the wrong area, and so it might show edema where there's really no edema there, so you have to look for that. Um, Decentration um, in macular edema is very common where they put the fovea in the wrong place. They'll put it under the PED or something along those lines. A blink defect gets in the way if you're trying to see something. That's a blink that's in the middle of the scan. Or vignetting, where the outer edges of the scan are just not strong enough to get you a good image. Um, OCTA is used a lot. In fact, in San Francisco at our academy last week, I was a presenter that said you have to have an OCTA to be able to, pr- to practice retina. I think that's overstating it a bit at now, but it's really a, a good tool. Um, the, the concept of an OCTA or an OCT angiography is that it takes two total scans and then compares those to each other. And any difference that it picks up is... is um, placed on movement of red blood cells. And so they can magnify those, and we get ask, actually like a fluorescein angiogram, but it's a non-invasive test, so no, no dye has to be injected, and yet we can see the vasculature here really well. And you could di- look at different layers of the vasculature. You can look at the inner retina, you can look at the middle part of the retina, or the outer retina, and even into the choroid. And you can see sort of the pathophysiology that is done that's really nice here. You can see a branch retinal vein occlusion where there's no blood flow to the retina. You can see a choroidal neovascular membrane, all non-invasively. And so, oops, I went too fast. Um, Let's see. Yeah. And so... um, What's nice about that is you can really show patients pathology, and you can show it to them quickly. You can say, hey, look, this is what's happening to your retina because of your diabetes. The same thing is happening to your feet. It's happening to your kidneys. It's happening everywhere. You need to control your sugars. And so that's 
basically, that's my spiel that I give them. Let's, let's work harder because your A1C of 10 is not cutting it. Um, so intraoperative OCT is something that we're starting to use now. I trialed one the other week in the, in the OR. It's not going to be readily available because it costs $200,000. But um, it's really cool technology because you can see what you've peeled. You can see the tissue that you've removed as you're doing it. So it's real-time data. Um, okay. So I'm going to Let's see. I'm going to fly through these, these cases actually really quickly till I get to the one that I want to talk about. And so this is an 85-year-old with an epiretinal membrane. Can't really see that on here. You know, if you look just at the picture, things look really pretty normal, 2040 and 2025 in the left eye. But if you look at the OCT, um, you'll see there's a little vitreomacular traction right there. And he's 2040 in 2009. And then we'll watch the progression as he gets a little worse at 2050. And then um, a year later, he's 2040, but that is starting to release. And here it's totally released, and he's back to 2025. So here's VMT that has happened, released on its own, and we didn't have to do anything. We just watched it over time, and that happens. Um, so these are the different types of vitreo. Uh, talk about uh, posterior vitreous detachment um, and floaters and a normal aging process that can be accelerated by trauma or surgery or high myopia, inflammation, different things that produce a PVD. Um, interruption of a normal PVD process um, can happen and can cause some of these anomalous things that will develop or vitreoretinal interface problems. Um, Going through what happens in a PVD, the liquefaction of the vitreous, it starts as early as four years old, um, increases in the teens. 20% of the vitreous at that point is actually liquefied. Um, by age 70, greater than 50% of the vitreous is liquefied. Ooh, there we go. No worries. Yeah, there you go. Um, so weakening of the vitreoretinal adhesions helps to produce some of these patholo pathology states that we see. Um, and so when they all release, you get a complete PVD and, and Weiss ring formation. When they don't all release, then you start to see vitreomacular adhesion or vitreomacular traction or macular hole formation. So these are the different stages of a PVD, um, different pictures that we kind of look at, and you can see as the vitreous separates. Um, PVD is not just an acute process. It's a culmination of liquefaction and weakening of the vitreous adhesions um, and forming of a Weiss ring. Um, an anomalous PVD produces some of these things, like vitreous traction and epiretinal avascular proliferation, um, and they're not mutually exclusive. You can get both of those. You can get vitreous traction and an ERM at the same time. Um, so these, these are the different disease states, and I've got pictures of them. VMA... Um, and this is, oh, this is terrible, but this just popped into my head. Um, you can all, if you're struggling to find a billing reason for an OCT, VMA is your answer because you can see that all the time. Sorry, that was just my, well, that's terribly cynical in this setting, but there you go. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, vitromacular, vitromacular traction, where you actually see some edema in the retina. And then full thickness macular hole formation, where the vitreous has actually pulled the layers of the retina apart. ERM formation, where you get this fibrous proliferation on the surface of the retina. Most of those stay stable, and the vast majority of ERMs don't progress. Um, and you can just watch them, and they really don't need surgery. Um, occasionally, they will. Um, uh, lamellar hole formation. Again, most of these don't respond very well to surgery, and that you end up just telling folks, this is what your vision is. Um, so the different stages, we have the gas um, stages of vitreomacular or of macular hole on this side and the new classification on this side. If you guys were residents, we'd quiz you about that, but you're not, so we'll just kind of leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> and so this was a case of a patient who had a macular hole here, 2200, 57-year-old female, decreased vision for a month. She had, this was her OCT um, with a macular hole, and she had surgery. Her hole closed, and she got back to 2030, so pretty good. Um, her risk in her fellow eye is 3% to get a macular hole in that eye. And so what we did was we watched her. One month post-op in her left eye, she's 2040. Um, six months later, in her non-operative, the contralateral eye, you can see this. She's starting to develop a little vitreomacular adhesion. She's still 2030. Um, six months after that, she's still 2030, maybe just a little bit more pulling on that. 
Um, two years later, you really start to see that there's some traction and some edema, but she's still 2030, so we keep watching. Um, four years post-operative surgery in the other eye, she's still 2030, but she has increasing metamorphopsia because of this little bubble of fluid there. Um, and then one year after that, she's 2080 and she has this full thickness hole. And so she is part of that 3% that went on to get a hole. And so she. You know, and I will do that if they're complaining enough. If they're 2020 or 2030 and um, they kind of got to talk me into surgery. Um, and so I'll say, look, is your, how bad is your metamorphopsia? And if it's bad enough, sure, we'll do it. Um, not very many of them. In fact, a lot of them will release. And so that's why we kind of end up watching them. So. Yeah. Well, and absolutely, because, and the reason is that 2080i, you get that hole to close, they may not get back to 2030. They may only get back to 2040 or 2050. So you've made them wait, and you've actually sacrificed a couple of lines of vision that they might have had if you would have operated earlier. And so it's a balance that you have to make, and it's a discussion with the patient. Some people aren't bothered by 2040 vision. They're fine with it. But some people, you know, your engineers, whatever, you know, they're going to be bothered by that. So... So, she, so this eye did well, but really only got back to 2050. You can see this is really early post-op. There's a bubble in that eye. Um, so this is my friend, Jay Miller. And Jay, um, Jay is a family practitioner in, um, in Sanford, Kentucky. And he went to Union College about 10 years earlier than I did, and then went to Loma Linda. Um, and he delivers about 200 to 300 babies a year. Um, so you can see Jay, if you notice closely, he's got a Port Wine stain or a Nevis Flamus on that side. Yeah. And so if you could see even a little closer, you would see that he was part of the 20%. So a Port Wine stain happens in about 0.3% of the population. Of those that have it in a V1 distribution, only about 20% will get childhood glaucoma. Well, Jay was one of those, and he had some treatment, but he's totally blind in that left eye. He has nothing. So he's gone through life delivering babies with one eye, um, and he's fine with that. Um, but he called me in August of this year, and he said, Pete, I need to talk to you about my retina. And I said, your retina? Which one? And he said, my good eye. And I said, uh-oh, what's going on? So he had seen one of my colleagues, and he had said, apparently... I'm developing a hole in my retina, and I can't see in the middle of, I'm missing part of my vision. And so I'm concerned, right? And so his OCT looked like this. And he had this thing pulling up on his retina. And so he was moderately concerned, um, symptomatic, obviously. Saw my colleague, and we both, my colleague and I talked, and we said, you know, look, you're monocular, you've got this, let's see what happens, and we'll just give it a few weeks. So we had him come back a few weeks later, and he looked like that. So it had popped off, but he's got this hole. He's actually still 2040, but the only reason he's 2040 is because he's looking around his scotoma. Um, and so we're both really nervous, and he's nervous, and his wife texted me at 5 a.m. the next morning. She's really nervous. And, and can appropriately so, right? Because this is his livelihood. This is his, this, it's everything. So I said, I said, well, let's pray together. So we prayed. And um, he's a wonderful man, a man of God. And I just love the guy. And at the point, at this moment, he had multiple things going on in his life with his practice, with, um, at church, the devil was really after him. And so we prayed together about how the devil was after him. And I, he said, look, I'm going to Philly to see my daughter and my grandkids. Why don't I go? I'll be back in a couple weeks, and we'll talk. And I said, okay. So he came, So we went to Philly. And he came back, and he saw my colleague again, and we were texting as we were seeing it. And he said, you know, oh, and, I, and I missed this part. The week before he came back, um, he was anointed. And, um, and we prayed over him. And we just said, Lord, do with as you will. And he kind of gave it up to God. He said, God, whatever you want to have happen, please just let it happen. I just want to be in your service. And so he came back and he said, you know, I think it might be getting better. And so he came back and it looked like that. So still with this little chunk of vitreous pulled off, but his tissue's coming back together. 
And his vision was 2025. And he said, I still have the gray spot, but I can start to see through the gray spot. And I told John Kitchens, my colleague, I said, this is exactly what we wanted, to look, wanted it to look like if we had operated on him. And we said, yeah, that's right. And Jay said, yeah. God is faithful, is he not? But I ask you the question, would God still be faithful if, he didn't, if that hole didn't close? Yeah. So this only, good question. This only happens 3% of the time. So Jay Miller, my friend, and he told me I could, I'm not killing hip, I told him I was going to tell you this story. And so he's got a condition in one eye that only 0.3% of the population has. And then he got a macular hole in his good eye that only 3% of the population has. And then his eye closed in only 3% of the folks that have that happen. Pretty cool stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So pretty cool stuff. So, um, okay. Yeah. Okay, so moving on. That's, so he didn't need a vitrectomy. So we just, we just went on with that. And yes, and cataract, and all those things. <laughs> so he's much better off to not have a vitrectomy in this case. <laughs> no, Jetria. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Jetria. So, yeah, I don't think it works too well. So, good. Any other questions? Because we're going to leave OCT now and go into the spiritual realm. Okay, all right. So, if you have your Bibles or your devices, maybe turn to Matthew 14, um, 22 through, we're going to concentrate on, on this story. Um, and you'll find that in verse 22, um, Jesus is directing his disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side of the lake to Capernaum. And you know what had just happened here. He had fed 5,000 men or 10,000 to 20,000 people if you counted everybody. And I don't want to skip by that because he fed 20,000 people with two fish and five loaves. Remarkable, right? 20,000 people is the same number of people that squeeze into Rupp Arena to watch Kentucky play basketball. And they're also the same number of people that fill most of our arenas to do anything, go to concerts, watch any type of sporting events. I have, on a weekly basis, about on every Wednesday night, about 20 people that come into my house. And it takes, I can tell you this for sure, it takes about six pizzas, six large pizzas to feed all of those folks. So I think that five loaves and two fishes probably wouldn't feed those 20 people that are in my house unless Jesus was there, and then it would. That's, (laughs) well, we take turns. (laughs) So these people that had just seen this were impressed with the power of God on display that day. And so impressed that they wanted to do something about it. They, if you look at the desire of ages, they wanted to make Jesus their king right then and there. And, and they tried to, and they started organizing. And guess who went with them? The disciples. The disciples wanted it too. They were ready to join in the multitude. So Jesus sees what's happening, and he understands what the result will be. He understands that there's controversy already with the Pharisees and the leaders at that time. And he says, there will be starting to fight. There might be bloodshed. A lot of bad things can happen. And it could even inhibit the development of my spiritual kingdom that I'm trying to have happen. So he stops it from happening. How does he stop it? In verse 22, he says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. Jesus immediately sent them away and wanted them to leave. So if you continue to read the story in Desire of Ages in chapter 40, the disciples don't immediately leave. They stay and they chat and they talk. And that's not necessarily a good thing when humans talk, is it? when we start to talk a lot because what happens is they start to murmur and they start to become dissatisfied that Jesus didn't allow them to make him to, uh, to he didn't want to be king but they wanted him to be king right then and they complained and the desire of ages says the disciples talked until they brought on spiritual darkness um, on themselves nobody else brought it on but they brought it on themselves they reasoned They even reasoned, could Jesus be an imposter? That's how far they got with this spiritual darkness. 
So again, they brought it upon themselves. Why? Because they chose to linger in doubt. They forgot what Jesus had just done um, for them in feeding of the 5,000. We would never do that, right? We would never, ever linger in doubt or questions. In fact, I heard this song mentioned this morning, on, I, and I thought of this song as I was thinking of this. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We sing that on Sabbath morning strongly, right? But what happens on Tuesday? What happens on Wednesday when we don't know the outcome? When we read this story, we know how it turns out. When in our own stories, we don't really know what's going to happen at the end of that story. And so I was so glad to see that they're going to talk about the match. Um, there's a, um, a young, he's an intern, that's going to actually speak to the match. The match has to be the worst day ever in a medical student's career. There's so much stress, so much pressure on if you're going to match and where you're going to match and on these young families. So, so I had a, um, there was a, a young medical student that called me um, I was a friend of a family, and she wanted to do ophthalmology, and she's just graduated from Loma Linda this past year. And so she was so excited about ophthalmology. She wanted this to be her career. She wanted to do mission work, all of these things, because she wanted to do cataract surgery for folks. And she, but she expressed her concern because there was one thing standing in her way, the USMLE score. And her step one scores were not fantastic. And so she was concerned. And so we talked. And... Um, and we talked for a long time, and I encouraged her, because actually I was one of those students, too, that was on the borderline. Um, and so I encouraged her to continue trying. Well, she came, and she spent a month with us, and she did the rotation. The residents loved her. The attendings loved her. And we, she did a lot to dissuade that score, but at the end of the day, she still didn't match, and she was heartbroken. And she said, God, why have you done this to me? You gave me this career and now it's taken away, and I can't do it. So we talked some more. And so she decided that she was going to do a research year and try, to, try it again. And so do some research and see if that would bolster, get her some letters and things. And so she, um, she graduated from Loma Linda. She moved out. She was ready to start. And the day before she was to start her research year, she got a call from a residency program that said, you know, we've decided that we want to expand. Would you be willing to move out here next week and start your residency? And she was jumping up and down, excited. And she got in her car. She packed up her bags that had just been unpacked like the week before, and she drove back. God is faithful, is he not? But would he have been faithful had she not matched? Would he still have been faithful had that not happened? So let's move on. Um, so um, what did Jesus do? And in, in, in verse 23, it says, And when he had led had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Did he pray for himself here? The commentary goes on. Uh, let's see. Hang on. I think I've got this one. Yeah. When left alone, Jesus went up into a mountain apart to pray. For hours, he continued pleading with God, not for himself, but for men, where the, but for men were those prayers. He prayed for power to reveal to men the divine character of his mission, that Satan would not blind their understanding and pervert their judgment. The Savior knew that his days of personal ministry on earth were nearly ended, and that a few would receive him as their redeemer. In travail and conflict of soul, he prayed for his disciples. So he wasn't praying for himself or anything like that. He was praying for his followers. And they needed it, right? Because as he was praying, they were down talking, getting discouraged, and concentrating on disappointment. The disciples had just witnessed a huge miracle. They should have been filled with excitement over that, but they allowed disappointment to fill their minds instead of faith and hope. They forgot the blessing. God gave them something else. God then gave them something else to occupy their minds. We know what happens in the story, right? They get in the boat, and then what happens? A storm is approaching. If you look at verse 24, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. What a great word, right? Contrary. Um, 
they were terrified. They really didn't have far to go to where they were to meet Je- where they were supposed to meet Jesus, but the wind kept blowing them out further out into the ocean. And they went into they went to the oars, but they weren't making any progress. And so it's the desire of ages goes on to say, until the fourth watch of the night, they toiled at the oars. Then the weary men gave up gave themselves up for lost. They just gave up. They were done for. In storm and darkness, the sea had taught them their own helplessness, and they longed for the presence of their master. At that moment, everything was forgotten, and they just needed Jesus. They had forgotten all the murmuring that they had done before, and that storm had given them crystal clear focus that all I need is Jesus. The the story in the Desire of Ages goes on, and it says this. Jesus had not forgotten them. The watcher on the shore saw those fear-stricken men battling with the tempest. Not for a moment did he lose sight of his disciples. With deepest solicitude, his eyes followed the storm-tossed boat with its precious burden, for these men were to be the light of the world. As a mother tender love, as a mother in tender love watches her child, so the compassionate master watched his disciples. When their hearts were subdued, their unholy ambition quelled, and in humility they prayed for help. It was given them. At the moment when they believed themselves lost, a gleam of light, a, a gleam of light reveals a mysterious figure approaching them upon the water. But they know not that it is Jesus. So, interesting here. Wow. They didn't know that it was Jesus. They just saw this figure walking, and they were scared of it. Is there so much there, right? When we see our deliverance that's coming and we don't recognize it. In fact, we're scared of it. That never happens to us and people, right? Where we see something that we're at first scared of, but it ends up saving us later on. I can tell you multiple times that that's happened in my life. Jesus came to them in the middle of the night. He had been watching them. And did you catch this verbiage here? As a mother in tender love watches her child, so the compassionate master watched his disciples. Wow. Have you ever seen a mother protecting her young? Does the term mama bear ever come into your mind? I have one of those in my house. In our house, mama is the disciplinarian. The girls know that if they really want something, they should come ask me first and see what dad says. And if they say, my room is a mess, I tell them, you better get that cleaned up or your mom's going your mom's to have a conniption. And, but I would say this, if you are someone outside of the family and you, have, and you mess with one of those girls, oh, heaven help you because all fire and brimstone is going to come down on your head. And in fact, yeah, <laughs> Jesus watched after them. Um, as a mother in tender love watched her child. That's how he watches us too, praise God. So there's this, um, these are my girls, and this is from a few weeks ago. And so, um, so there's this one principal at their school who has, does not learn from repetition. Every single, he is the one that makes the decision on whether kids get into the higher level math or the lower level math. And each one of my kids has been put into the lower level math because of a single point score on a standardized test. And every single time my wife calls and makes an appointment with that principal and he ends up changing his mind after that meeting. And you would think that he would learn, right? That maybe I shouldn't do this. By the third one, maybe we should just go ahead and put the, no. And I guarantee you he is thankful that we don't have four children. And so, yeah, yeah. And so in verse 27, Jesus says, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Wonderful words of peace and reassurance that he gives the disciples. Be of good cheer. And Peter, what does Peter do? He does a very typical Peter thing, correct? He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It is so Peter here. Unthinking, brash, inappropriate. The pejoratives could really go on and on with what he's doing. But Jesus ignores that and says one word, come. He answers in the affirmative, come on out. Even though it's a crazy request, come on out. And what happens next is stated just so flatly in verse 29. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. 
There's no exclamation point. There's nothing. He just walked on the water. And you have to say, really? Come again? Say that one more time. Because this is a crazy story that he walked on the water. But we keep reading, don't we? We know what happens. In verse 30, it says, But when he says, saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. It's the same thing that happened earlier with the disciples, right? He took his eyes off of Jesus and became, and became concentrating on the other things, the discouragement that was, hand, that was happening around him. And what happens? Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and caught him and to say, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? I am here. Don't worry. Don't doubt. I am faithful. And so... And I had to ask one question. Can you see wind? The verse says he saw the wind. Do we see wind? We don't see wind. No. He just got distracted and his focus was diverted from Jesus and the results of the wind. So in October of 2015, our family decided to take a short-term mission trip. And our church in Lexington um, had, just, had been talking about taking a trip for several years now. And um, we, we thought it sounded like a wonderful opportunity. And we'd always talked about it. Um, our kids were starting to get to the age that where they, they could go. Our youngest was nine at that point. We felt like that was an appropriate age to go someplace, you know, crazy. Um, and so, um, and before I tell the story, let me just tell you, um, our pastor at the time was, was Pavel Goya, and you may have heard him. He was, um, he has since, in 2016, he left us, and he's now working for the General Conference. He speaks at ASI and all over the denomination. And if you've heard him speak in the last couple of years, you may have heard this story. Um, but I would caution you, if you've heard the story, it'll be from a different perspective, and it's probably not the same story that you heard him tell, and certainly not with the same flair. And so, but I'll do the best I can. Um, so Pavel was very instrumental in, in our growth and our faith, and certainly in my growth uh, as a Christian. Um, he emphasized prayer and experiencing God in his ministry. His stories of experiencing God and God's leading in communist Romania and later here in the U.S. are remarkable. And they are all in a book called One Miracle at a Time, the Pavel Goya Story. During that period, I started to, to pray a prayer. And it's, I said, God, please let me be involved in leading someone to Christ. Let me see that happen on a spiritual, personal level. Be careful what you pray for. God answers those prayers. Every heartfelt prayer gets an answer. Well, the opportunity for this mission trip came. And our kids were getting to that right age that I talked about. And so um, they decided to, this trip was to Cuba. And so um, we thought, what a great opportunity. It's pretty close. Not a lot of flying involved. Um, it's to a communist country. They'll never have the opportunity to see this really again. It's in the Caribbean, so it'll be warm. We'll get to spend some time at the beach. It's when, when, when everything was go. And so, but before we even left for the trip, um, some things happened that should have clued me in that this was not going to be a typical trip. Um, the trip had been advertised that there would be, we would be going to these towns that did not have an Adventist presence, or at least a very small Adventist presence. And so we would be putting on a, an evangelistic series and a VBS all at the same time, and in hopes that this would help to start a church in these towns. Um, so several weeks before the scheduled leaving date, we had a conference call where we, the teams were going to be divvied up. And so um, I was excited to see that we were in Guaymaro. I wasn't totally excited because Guaymaro is down about eight hours from Havana. It's in the very southern tip of Cuba. And, um, um, and I kind of wanted to see Havana. So I was a little disappointed at that, but so be it. But then I looked at below Guaymaro, the Guaymaro name and I read the names. There was only five names, me, my wife, and my three kids. And I said, really? I thought we were going to have a team. And my, this team turns out to be us. <laughs> and I thought, my wife has never done this. I was supposed to give 12 lectures in 10 days. I had never done that. Um, I could give OCT lectures, but I can't give evangelistic lectures. And so... Um, it was scary. And in fact, if I would have known that that was how it was going to be, I would not have signed up. God protects us sometimes from our own fault, fealties, right? So 
So, but it was a little bit late to turn that down. I had one, and I, and I wrote down, my wife and I were shook, and we were literally shook. We talked about this for a couple of days about trying to get out of this. Um, but I did have one possibility of getting out of this, and that's that I hadn't paid the entire fee yet, which was pretty considerable, right, for five of us to go to Cuba for the, for the, um, for the flight, for the chartered flight, for the transfers and everything. So I prayed about it. I said, God, if you want us to go, please provide. And that was it. This was not a long prayer. This was a short prayer because I really didn't want him to hear it. I was hopeful that none of this would happen. So... The previous year, I'd had my identity, my identity stolen. And so this had delayed my tax return from getting back to me. And so I had had to go through, if you've ever had your identity stolen, it's not fun. And so um, I'd had to go through all these interviews and all this documentation to prove who I was. And to be honest, I had kind of forgotten about my tax return that I hadn't gotten back from a year and a half earlier. And so it came about a Two a week or two weeks before we were supposed to go on the trip, about a week before I was supposed to make the final payment, and I opened the mail, and there's a letter from the IRS. And usually you don't like those letters, right? Um, so, but I opened up the letter, and I looked at it, and I said, oh, Lord, really? You answer it like this. There's a check, my long-lost refund, but not just a check, to the very dollar for what I owed for that trip. And I said, okay, God, you, you win. I give. I'm going. I'm done. <laughs> so we went. So my wife, my 16-year-old, my 13-year-old, and my 9-year-old at the time. There's lots of stories, actually, on how we got there and the trip there, but I'm not going to tell you those because I need to concentrate on, on, these stor- on, the, on the real stories of, of what happened. So we had some travel delays. We got there on late on a Friday evening. Um, there, the evangelism was supposed to start the next day. We we're supposed to have a Sabbath service and then an evening service. And so we looked at the house. It was tiny. Think, think a San Francisco row house. So long and skinny, really skinny. Kitchen in the back, an eating area then, and then a front room. And that was it. And the front room was a sitting area, but it served as the sanctuary for the church. And if you opened the door and opened all the windows and people sat outside, it would hold maybe 20 people. 20, 25 people. It was tiny. Um, And so I actually wasn't all that sad about that, to be perfectly honest, because that means fewer people, and that was fine. And I I was good with that. I was just kind of rolling with the punches, you know, and whatever happened, happened. It was good, and um, just going to enjoy the experience. Um, So we had two meetings on Sabbath, Um, a church service, which went fine, and then we had an evening meeting where we had 15 to 20 people that showed up, and then we had about five or 10 kids for my wife's VBS program. So but there was something happening in Guaymaro at the same time, and that's that it was Carnival. And if you've ever been around Carnival, it's a big party. It's a huge party. And so right at the intersection where the house church was, directly diagonal, was a nightclub. And so the, the guys, the locals that we had met that were helping us do this meeting, they had rented out some speakers. Um, some speakers. Um, and so um, to, to play our praise and worship music and to create some street attraction so that maybe some passerbys might want to come in. And so you hear our praise and worship mu- music playing and we're singing. And then from across the street, you hear the techno beat of the boom, boom, boom of the dance music. And they kind of started a little competition. Our guys would turn up the sound just a little bit. And then their guys would turn up the sound a little bit. Pretty soon, both sound systems were maxed out in this intersection. It was the great controversy right there. Right? So, and I say that in jest, but really it probably was, right? There was angels around us, and there was angels, evil angels around them. Oh, shoot. Hang on. Um, And so our meeting went fine. We went back. We slept for the night. And... um, and we got up the next day. We came back. We had breakfast. We had worship. We were just kind of hanging out, planning the day, planning some visits and what we were going to do. And there's a knock on the door. Hang on, I've lost my place. Um, and so, um, and who was at the door? 
couple of police officers. And so the locals come and they go and talk to the police. And the Americans, me and my wife, we kind of go to the back and we're going to hide and not you know, kind of just look around the corner what's going on. And we could see the conversation, lots of Spanish. You guys have been in rooms like this where the Spanish is flowing and it's fast and they're agitated and, and all of this. And we're like, something's going on and this isn't really good. And so, um, so they finish their conversation and they come back and they tell us we're shut down. And I'm like, What? We're shut down. What does that even mean? And so, well, apparently, the organizer of the trip had gotten national permission to have these meetings. But we did not have local permission from the local police department to have these meetings. And they said, if you continue to have people gathering in the house, you will be arrested and your, ga- and your guests will be arrested. Us. God, I wasn't ready for this. I can tell you, this is, not, this is not what I had in mind for my mission trip where I was going to the Caribbean to see Cuban culture and hang, hang out at the beach and do some good for you, but then go home. This, this is not what I had in mind at all. Um, and it was a little chaos at that point in the house. Um, the Spanish folks, the Cubans were all talking rapidly with what's going on. And, and me and my wife were kind of talking in what's happening. And we started making phone calls. So we called to the local pastor. We called to the district pastor. We called to the conference people. We called to the seminary folks in Havana. Who can you talk to to allow us to have our meetings? We've traveled all the way here. We don't want to waste this two weeks that we're here. And so lots of conversations over a few-hour period. But at the end of the day, there's nothing they can do. They're canceled. We're going to get arrested if we, start, if we continue to have the meetings. So we're really disheartened. We are focusing on the discouragement of the time. And so I think to myself, well, I want to salvage this week, at least for my kids, at least so that they have a good experience and not this bad taste in, in their mouth. So I call Pavel, and he's in Havana. I'm like, Pavel, can we come and do, let us just come and help you, and we'll just come to speak with, and with, with you. And Pavel says, nope, in his Romanian. And I'm like, what? Dude, you drug me all the way out here, and you're going to leave me out, you're leaving me out to dry? Dude, what am I, I got nothing to do here. I'm going to get arrested. And he said, God sent you to work there. You better stay there and work. And he said, you better pray. And he's very emphatic. And Pavel is very persuasive. And um, he really should be a car salesman. And, um, oh, I'm sorry. This is on Audioverse. Um, and so, but he was very persuasive to me. And we had prayed, but we hadn't really prayed. We hadn't done the really heart-searching. So I said, okay, let's pray. And so we gathered all the people, um, all of our team. Oh, shoot. And um, so we prayed the rest of the afternoon. And we really poured our hearts out to God. And we said, God, why are we in this situation? You need to help us. And not just us, but the local volunteers. They had given up time at their jobs with their family to come and volunteer for these meetings. There was probably 10 of them that had done that. And so we told God all of this, and we said, God, please start to work for us. And he started. Later that evening, after our prayer session, um, one of our team members was out in the street walking around doing some shopping for some food for the next day. And a police officer, one of the police officers that had been at the house came up to him, and he said, you know, the reason you can't have your meetings is because you're not in an established church. If you were in an established church, we couldn't have shut you down. Ding, 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 light bulbs. So maybe we could find a church in the city that would allow us to use their facility. Maybe if we go talk to those pastors, they'll allow us to rent from them. You know, it's, not, it's a small chance, but it's a chance, you know? So we so said, okay, let's pray about that. So we prayed about that. The next day, we go out and we talk to them. There's not really very many churches in the city. It's communist Cuba, right? But there are a few. So we go to talk to all of them. We visit with the Baptist pastor first, and he says, nope, sorry, we have services all week, and it's busy, so you can't really use our facility. And then we go and we talk to the Pentecostals. Nope, sorry, the person in charge isn't here. You need to talk to the district pastor. They won't be back for a week. And then we, we, we even went and talked to the Catholics. There was no chance that we were going to be meeting in that church. I guarantee you that after that conversation. So... Um, so I said, look, I, I called Pavel back, and I said, here's what we did. We prayed. We had this idea, but it's not working out. Can we come talk with you? Can we come share in your meetings? No, you cannot come share. You better pray again. You better go pray some more. And so I went, and, so I went and, I, and we prayed some more, and we said, Lord, 
let this work out. Lord, make work for us. Please give us a place. We want to have these meetings. And so the next day or later on that day, the Baptist pastor came back to us. And he said, you know, like our stuff isn't really starting for a couple of days. If you want to have your meetings for a day or two, that would that'd be okay. You can do them that. Well, it wasn't really the answer that we wanted, but praise the Lord, we could have a couple of meetings. And so we decided, let's do it. So everybody kicked into action. Oh, I got to hurry up. Um, and so um, we started making visits and phone calls, and we went over to the church and visited. And we were happy because it was actually a real church. It held about 100, 125 people. And it had speakers, and it had a screen. It had all the stuff that we needed. And so we were excited. So the next thing I had to do was figure out we'd missed a couple of meetings because of the delay. And so I had to redo the, 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 um, the order that I was going to present stuff. And I said, well, if I want to talk about everything that I want to talk about, I need to talk about Sabbath. So we're going to talk about Sabbath that evening. And so, um, and so we showed up. So we showed up that night. And... Um, and it was, it was actually a decent-sized crowd. We had probably um, 30 people or so that were there, more kids that were there for Dion's, um, for Dion's group. And, um, and so I got up to speak, and I looked out over the audience, and I said, oh, there's the Baptist pastor. I'm going to talk about Sabbath. And I thought to myself, how is this going to go over? And I shot up a quick prayer, and I said, Lord, you inspired me to do this. I'm just going to do it anyway, and I'm going to say what I had planned to say, and I did. And it seemed well-received by the audience. It actually was, and I couldn't really read his facial expression. He kind of had a poker face on, and it was fine, so nothing bad happened. There was, yeah, there was no scene or anything. But after the meeting, I was, we were cleaning up, getting ready to go, and um, my translator and I were standing there, and I saw the Baptist pastor eyeing us, and he came over and he said, can I talk to you guys for a minute? And I was like, oh, no, the foot is about to fall. And he started talking and he said, you know, what you said from the Bible was good and it was prayerful. And I think it was the truth. And he said, you know, why don't you guys have the rest of your meetings here the rest of the week? And so he gave us their facility to have our meetings there for that week and into the weekend. And as long as we wanted to be perfectly honest. And so we had a place. So we went back and we had a prayer meeting. We really prayed because we had a praise meeting that night afterwards. And so we were so excited. And so fantastic. So we went back and and we showed up the next night for our meeting. And I walked in and it was packed. Every seat was full. There was people everywhere. Dion had brought a hundred sets of crafts and things. And she thought, I'll just use a few of them and I'll leave them with the kids to use. They can use it for the next year um, at their little church. She used every single one for those kids. And what had the Baptist pastor done? He had gone and invited his congregation to come to these meetings. Lord, I am humbled. I am really humbled at this point because I wanted to have a vacation. I wanted to just have an experience and see Cuba. But you wanted to do something big. And you had me go through this storm to get there. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. So one more. And then I, oh, man, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll be done here quick. Okay. All right. All right. So, um, so the meeting's finished. We got to the end. And... Um, It came time to settle up with everyone. So you have to pay the taxi drivers. You have to pay for the food. You have to pay everybody. And so we were, um, so Dion had been in charge of the mission money, and she had kind of kept track of that. And so we went back to our room to divvy everything up, and she started spreading out all the money on on the bed. And I was kind of over on this side, kind of getting ready for the evening meetings. And she was making piles of money for this person, for this person, for this person. And I saw her, and she started to get a little agitated. And she started counting things over and over again. And um, I was like, what's going on? And I didn't say anything, um, but she, I could see her. I could see that happening, her counting. And, um, and finally she came to me and she said, Pete, did you get the money? It's always my fault. Did you get the money, our personal money, confused with the 
with the mission money? And I said, I don't think so. And I went and I opened up the packet, my backpack. I said, no, here's our personal money right here. And here's um, the emergency money. Pavel had given us some emergency money that we were, if we didn't spend, he said, don't spend it. But if you have to, spend it. But if not, we're going to give it to the pastors. So I was like, okay, sounds good. And so, but, and we hadn't touched that. I still had all of that money right there. And she looked at me and she said, we have 2000 extra dollars. And I said, what? She said, I kid you not, we have 2000 extra dollars that I don't know where it came from. And so, and Pavel tells this story like this envelope that kind of didn't go down and he kept giving. And really, that's what it was. We don't have the envelope anymore. The envelope is gone. But we had 2000 extra dollars. And so with that money, we were able to give each person that volunteered double. And we were able to buy them a refrigerator. The church was cooking for 20 people, and they didn't have a refrigerator. So we were able to buy them a refrigerator. We were able to buy them an oven. An oven is, a cook, is a, just a, a pot warmer. It's not, it's not much. But we were able to buy them an, an oven, is what they, three ovens, actually. And so we were able to do all these things because of that extra money. God is good, right? Amen. He is faithful. Loaves and fishes, loaves and fishes. He multiplies. Praise the Lord. And so um, I'll wrap up quickly. Um, so on the way back, we did, we finished the meetings. We had some baptisms. I got to see that, and I was involved in that. Um, the Lord answered that prayer. And, um, and so we were on the flight back from Havana to, um, to Miami, and I was looking out over the water, and my thoughts were troubled. And I actually just started crying and weeping. And I said, God, I'm not the same. I'm different today. Um, why is that? And the answer came to me that I had seen Jesus. And I had seen Jesus working in a real powerful way. And it upset me because, um, because I had seen these people volunteering that had come in. And I knew in my heart how many meetings that I had missed because I was tired or because there was a ball game or be some reason that I didn't give my full effort at some type of evangelistic meeting. And yet God used those people who gave everything. And so, and I really resonated with what Brian said the other night, um, last night, uh, when he talked about, um, we have all these resources and we're supposed to use them. You know, and I went through all the data and I actually looked at it and calculated the odds that, you know, there's 7.7 billion people in, in the world. There's only 325 million in the United States. And every one of us in this room are part of the 1% of the highest level of income in the richest country in the world. Our odds are much more likely that we would be born in India, where there's 150 billion people, or China, where there's 150 billion people. Our odds are much greater to get born in, the, in those countries, where the standard of living, the, the, what you make per month, is way lower. In Cuba, they live on $20 a month. You know, I have a, I have a vice, and that vice is coffee, because of be just, it, just is, it just is what it is. And I know I'm at amen and I'm talking about that. But I tell you, I spend more a month on coffee than what those people live on. And that hit me. And I said, wow, Lord, I have a responsibility for that. I really do have a responsibility for what you've given me. And I will never mail it in to an evangelistic meeting again. I promise you that. And that's what I thought as I was, driving, as I was flying back. The other thing that I thought was this. So I got to tell you the story. Um, so we talk about that responsibility. Um, so one of the translators, Jesus, um, it's amazing that his name is Jesus. But um, so they would walk us to our living complex and back each day. In fact, two or three times a day because they were worried about our safety. And so Jesus would walk with us. And so one day I was walking with Jesus. And it was about a mile and a half walk or two miles walk. So it's half an hour time to talk. And so we were chatting. And Jesus is an electrician in um, Cuba. And, but he can't practice. He can't do elect, uh, electrical work on the open because he's a Sabbath keeper. And so because he's a Sabbath keeper, he has to function as an electrician underground. He can do jobs, but it's always underground. And so 
we were talking and chatting and, and whatnot, and he said, Pete, what does, an electron, what does an electrician make in the United States? And my heart kind of sank, actually, because I knew what he made, and we had just had our kitchen redone, and I had to hire an electrician, and I know what I paid him. <laughs> and I knew that that electrician made more in an hour than Jesus made in a month. And so I just kind of hemmed and hawed, and I really didn't answer his question, and I just kind of tried to make it go away. Jesus would not let it go away. He was very direct. And he said, no, how much do they make? And so I had to tell him. I said, well, I paid my guy 40 to $50 an hour to come and do work for me. And, you know, and he looked, and I thought, I thought, oh, this is going to be bad. This is really going to go over poorly. And he looked at me, and he thought for a moment, and he said, you know what? That's okay, because I have Jesus. And I thought to myself, so my, my, I have to read you this verse. Um, so you've read Revelation 3, Revelation 3, 17, right? This is where we're talking, talking about Laodicea. And um, have you ever thought about the juxtaposition of being the remnant people and yet living in the time of Laodicea and how those two things go together? I'll leave that to the theologians to figure out. But those two things, how they work. So it says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's describing us. So we think that we have all this stuff, that we have all these things to give. And yet he says we're poor and blind and wretched. Why? Because sometimes we don't have Jesus. We can have all the stuff in this world and not have Jesus, and we don't have anything. Jesus that day was way richer than I was. And I missed that. And I said, I want to have Jesus because it doesn't matter what you have. So sometimes we do all this mission work, and we go and we do good things, and we, we do surgeries, and we give out glasses, and we take care of people, and it's good. But sometimes those people are the missionaries to us because we need to have Jesus. That's what I discovered that day, and that's why I'm different. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your love, and I just thank you that you showed me that um, during that trip, and I thank you that I will be different from that day onward. Lord, be with us today as we continue to talk, um, and help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to be more like you each day. In your name I pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.